0: If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode.
1: Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host
2: of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify
1: for The Weekend Intelligence.
3: we don't know our history, we don't know where we've come from, we don't know who we are. So it's such an important part of our identity. Um, And remember, you've got more people of Irish heritage living in Great Britain uh, than you do living on the island of Ireland. That was Jane
1: Olmeyer talking to us about the history of Ireland. A new four-volume history of Ireland was launched by Cambridge University Press. Spanning around 1,500 years of Irish history, from 600 AD to today, the project had four editors and more than 100 historians as contributors. For today's episode, we caught up with one of the editors, Professor Jane Olmeyer of Trinity College Dublin, who oversaw the volume covering the period 1550 to 1730. She spoke to our website assistant, Rachel Dinning, about the new history and shared some insights into early modern Ireland.
2: So, Jane, you've recently been involved with this rather incredible project to create a comprehensive history of Ireland spanning well over a thousand years. So, to start off this podcast... Perhaps you'd like to tell our listeners a little bit more about this and how it came about.
3: I'd be really happy to, Rachel. So the Cambridge History of Ireland is a four volume uh, multi-author history of Ireland from basically the seventh century through to 2016. Um, and uh, there are over 100 authors, um, uh, about 25 chapters in each volume. There's over 3000 pages. So it really is a very ambitious undertaking. And we began it in earnest back in 2014. So it's something that has actually happened remarkably quickly. Certainly by Irish academic standards, uh, given the scale of the volume and the ambitious nature of it. And you, you, while well,
2: you mentioned it covers such a massive span of history from as early as the year 600 right through to the present day. So why, in your view, is it important to have this large collaborative work covering this incredible span
3: of time? <laughs> I- I was going to say every nation needs its history. I think it's really important that you have these very, very definitive, comprehensive histories, you know, sort of at least once in a generation. So the last major um, history of Ireland was actually done by Oxford University Press, and the first volumes appeared in the 1970s. Um, However, it Took them, oh my goodness, forty years to get all nine volumes out. Uh, so uh, we we learnt from that, and we said we don't want you know if we're going to do it, we want to do it in the generation, we want to do it quickly. So um that you know we were determined that that all four volumes would come out at the same time and within a relatively short period, because we really want this to be a window into this generation's thinking about Ireland, uh, and when we're talking about Ireland, we're talking about the island itself, but we're also talking about the Irish abroad because, you know, the island of Ireland today is you know, six million people, six and a half million people. But if we look to the Irish diaspora, it's an audience of about 70 million or up to 70 million people would claim to be of Irish descent. So we're very conscious um, it's a story of Ireland and the Irish and what it means to be Irish uh, uh, in the 7th century, in the 18th century and in the 21st century. You know, we're we're very keen uh, uh, to, to, as I say, take that snapshot uh, across time.
2: And this period of history that you edited was, I believe, 1550 to 1730. So this was one of the four volumes. So I thought perhaps we could talk a bit about this volume in particular.
3: What is so interesting about this period of history for you? Okay, the early modern period, sort of 1550 to 1730, that long 17th century, is a very transitionary moment in Irish history. So Ireland was England's first colony. And obviously, uh, uh, England had been colonising Ireland from the 12th century. But that process of conquest and colonisation really um, was completed in the 16th and early 17th centuries. And so what we're seeing is a period of intense change, intense commercialization. Uh, we see the plantation, so also the introduction of Protestantism. We see uh, obviously a lot of plantation going on, uh, um, intense colonisation, not just in Ulster, but actually across the country. Um, uh, uh, and, this desire to make ireland english uh, so you know you need to look at ireland very much through the lens of westward expansionism it was an age of of discovery of imp- imperialism, the birth of the British Empire, although at this stage it's a very English initiative rather than a truly British one. Um, And Ireland is the epicentre of that. And it's out of this period that we see the birth of modern Ireland as we would know it today. But obviously, Ireland is a country where the events of the 17th century uh, were sort of hardwired into our DNA. And so events that took place in this period still shape identity even in the 21st century. So it's it's a very important period um, at at so many levels. Firstly, how it defines modern Ireland, but also how it has shaped identity, um, uh, both of the Catholic community, uh, uh, but also of, of the Protestant community.
2: That's really interesting. Would you like to give us some examples of that? What events from this period are shaping the identities of people living in
3: Ireland today? Of course, um, uh, Rachel. So so say, for example... The Irish loved to rebel um, and there's a whole series of rebellions um, against this, the encroachment if you want, of of English rule over Ireland. But the most spectacular rebellion occurred in 1641 um, when uh, there was a major insurrection that of course then became part of a wider conflagration, the Wars of the Three Kingdoms or the English Civil War. Um, And that Event is particularly significant because it began uh, with the murder of um, a very significant number of Irish Protestants at the hands of Irish uh, Catholics, um, and it then became an integral part of of Protestant identity. and And uh, uh, throughout the centuries, um, Protestant propagandists and polemicists would point to 1641 as this moment when, um, if you want, the papist Ireland rose up and murdered their Protestant neighbours. So it was a way that obviously shaped a a sense of Protestant or or loyalist identity, but also it was used as a a whipping, a way to to, to whip up anti-Catholic sentiment at at key moments. And and it really wasn't until the peace process, which is now 20 uh, years old, that actually Ireland Came to terms fully uh, with 1641 and the events of 1641. And this history is obviously written post Troubles um, and uh, very much a product of the peace process. Um, we're now able to approach these events uh, more as history rather than as memory. So the emotiveness has gone out of it and we're able to look at it. Th- through a very different lens. Um, and uh, But it would just be one example. Other examples would be Oliver Cromwell um, is obviously celebrated um, in English circles as a great parliamentarian, a great hero of republicanism Uh, in Ireland. He would be excoriated as God's executioner, responsible for dreadful atrocities uh, that were committed at at Drogheda, at Wexford. Uh, So that would be another sort of key moment um, that is very much a linchpin of a nationalist or Catholic identity in Ireland. Another great example would be William of Orange and the Battle of the Boyne. Again, very important for a Protestant uh, a sense of identity when uh, William of Orange, um, uh, if you want, defeated the Catholic King James uh, II. What people don't want to acknowledge, of course, is that William of Orange was supported by uh, A, a, a very significant number of allies including the Pope, uh, that te deums were sung in Rome in support of, of William's uh, victory at the Boyne because it was all about defeating the wicked Louis XIV, who was the king of uh, France at the time. So, so, But th- that sort of complexity would have been lost. And, and this sort of history allows you to remind people that things are never as straightforward as they seem um, and to look at our history with a degree of dispassion um, and distance that really hasn't been possible until relatively recently. And I think this is one reason why this uh, initiative is just so important.
2: That's a really interesting point, this idea that today you can write about events in a way that's perhaps more objective. I mean, obviously, no history of Ireland can ignore the Troubles. How is that dealt with in the Cambridge History of Ireland? I imagine it must be quite difficult to write about the Troubles in a way that's not going to bring up these difficult emotions, you know, on both sides of it, for both the Protestant and Catholic
3: communities. I grew up in Belfast, uh, Rachel. So for me, what occurred um, after 1969 you know it can't be history yet it's still very much part of our memory um and, and I think that's the challenge and and my colleague Tom Bartlett is the editor of volume 4 um, um and I think when it comes to the troubles we have to recognise that you know that it, it is extremely difficult to write this with the same degree of objectivity that we can for events that occurred in the middle ages in the 17th century in the 18th century so I think we all acknowledge that um and I'm sure uh, that those chapters are the ones that are probably going to cause the greatest sense of the, maybe be the most contested, because so many of the protagonists are still alive, mm-hmm. and and it, it'll be one of those areas where um, you know people will say, oh, it wasn't like that, or or you know maybe the archive uh, you know isn't complete yet. So I think we're fully uh, expecting. Um, for there to be debate and controversy, uh, maybe around some of the more, um, uh, the chapters that deal with more recent ev- events, in- including the Troubles. Going back to
2: your period, so 1550 to 1730, the start of this period was a time when the Tudors were in power. And I was quite curious to ask you about this because I was wondering how Ireland, with its large Catholic population at the time, was see, was it seen as a threat to England? Um, what was the sort of relationships in terms of religion between England and Ireland during this
3: time period? It's a complicated one, is the simple answer, as it always is. But you're right. Um, from the 1530s and, and Henry VIII and the Protestant Reformation, um, Ireland really becomes a very serious security threat to Protestant England. It's always seen as a potential backdoor to England, uh, especially for the great European powers, for Spain and later France. So in order um, to secure England, you have to secure Ireland. So the Tudors um, tried very, very hard to if you want, conquer Ireland militarily, um, uh, something that actually is achieved uh, with the death of uh, Elizabeth I. She dies in 1603 uh, at at precisely the moment that Ireland is militarily uh, uh, conquered. Um, So it's for the Stuarts um, and James VI of Scotland and the first of Ireland, England, uh, Scotland and Wales to benefit from uh, the fact that Ireland has finally been uh, militarily subdued. But of course, that Military subjection uh, is constantly challenged um, by rebellions that break out, especially 1641, and then we have uh, a lot of uh, instability after 1688, the War of the Three Kings, and then again in 1798. So, so you know, the 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 fact that Ireland represents a very real security threat to England um, is 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 just a reality uh, uh, throughout these uh, years. Um, but what's going on in Ireland is much more complicated because. It's one thing to subdue Ireland militarily. Ideally, you want to try and convert uh, the population to Protestantism, which is the language of England. Um, But there's also a wider cultural agenda here, uh, a desire to introduce the English language, the English legal system, uh, to create a mini England uh, in Ireland uh, in terms of of the organisation of society, Um, uh, to commercialise Ireland, to transform it from a very uh, unsophisticated, if you almost barter redistributive economy into one that is based around money and markets. All of this is going on uh, uh, in this period. And obviously, the introduction of English and Welsh and Scottish settlers is is part of this desire to civilize Ireland. And when I say civilize, obviously that's in inverted commas because that was the language used at the time. But it's part of this uh, Anglicization of Ireland that occurs very intensively uh, uh, during this period.
1: This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, Need to hire? You need indeed.
2: I recall in your introduction to the volume, you mentioned this Ulster poet who laments that Ireland has become New England in all but name, which I thought was quite interesting. Was it difficult for people to to have a
3: sense of Irish identity at this time? That, that's a really good question. Irish identity uh, uh, in the 17th century, because I think people have multiple identities at, at any point, but but obviously during this period, because what you find is Ireland as a nation state. You know, it's it, it's been a patchwork of of of, of feudal lordships, effectively, um, um, with lots of high kings, with lots of very powerful um, local magnates. So. Um, it, it, identity tended to be very local, very regional. Um, but if there was an overriding sense of identity, obviously, th- when it became to Irishness, it was very much uh, it became associated with those who were Catholic, those who were Irish speaking. But remember, the colonial elite is English speaking, um, uh, 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 with a, uh, 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 and many of the great Irish lords want also to be seen as great you know, uh, proponents of 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 Englishness and people work very hard to be perceived as English. And when I say work very hard, I mean the the Irish colonial elite actually don't want to be seen as Irish. They want to be seen as English. Um, uh, uh, and then what you'll have is an influx of, of Scottish settlers, an influx of English settlers. Uh, and obviously the English settlers retain a very strong sense of Englishness uh, and the Scottish settlers the early generations retain their sense of Scottishness, but over time they also want to be regarded as english and that's why this process of anglicisation goes into that very sense of i you know being and identity and mindsets now obviously that's not everyone that's the elite as we go down the social hierarchy, people have a much stronger sense of of irishness um and um that's reinforced by the Catholic Church and by the, if you want, indigenous or the native Bardic tradition and um, a very, very strong attachment to the Irish language. Many people in, say, mid-17th century Ireland would have been bilingual or would have been Irish uh, speakers. The English language, you know, is the lingua franca in the sense it's the language of commerce, of the courts, of of the church. Uh, and I say the church, I mean the Protestant church. But, but you know, we're, we're, it's, it's a very hybrid uh, society where identity Entities are sometimes confused, very complicated. And people will slip between identities. So on the one hand, um, somebody like the Earl of Antrim, who is of Scottish provenance, he wants to be um, heralded as a great Irish lord, not a Scottish one, as an Irish one. But he also wants to be seen as a great English lord uh, as well. And then uh, his followers will follow his example because it's still an intensely, um, I was going to say clan based, tribal type of community. So it's, it's not easy to unpick identity. And the other complicated, not complicating, but the other very interesting factor is the continental influences that are coming in um, and the fact so many Irish people, especially Catholic Irish people, are educated on the continent. Um, and so, you know, that's adding this very interesting uh, ingredient as well.
2: I was going to ask, actually, um, when we look at the history of Ireland, we, well, In Britain, we tend to focus on Anglo-Irish relations, but um, what relationships did early modern Ireland have with Europe and the wider world?
3: Well, you know, those relationships are very extensive and they're fascinating, Rachel. So um, in the early modern period, what we find are extensive Irish communities in places like Liverpool and London, which is what we would expect. But you also have very, very vibrant communities of Irish settlers um, in, across France, across Spain. Uh, but as far east as Prague, uh, we see uh, Irish mercenaries in Russia, in Poland, but um, But then globally, the Irish are very active in the empires of Spain, of France, of Portugal, of the Dutch, um, and of course, of England. So by the turn of, uh, say, about 1650, we have um, Irish uh, traders in the Dutch and Portuguese Amazon. We have Irish uh, settlers in Spanish Cuba, uh, uh, Spanish Mexico. We have them uh, in the French. Caribbean, as well as in the English colonial world, and um, the, the North American uh, colonies. But we also find Irishmen across Asia, uh, the founding father of Bombay is a man who was born in Ireland, he's third generation Irish, um, and he he himself may describe himself as English, um, but certainly his contemporaries in the East India Company would have called him Irish, and he, he held his Irishness very dearly, a man called Gerald Ainger. Um, and somebody like Ainger would have gone to Bombay and brought his experiences of Ireland uh, to Bombay and uh, colonised Bombay very much as his grandfathers would have colonised Ireland. So I think there are multiple... uh, 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 Ireland's very much a global nation in this period. Um, Two sailors from Galway uh, sailed with uh, Ferdinand Magellan as he circumnavigated the globe. Another sailor man called William Ayres uh, across the Atlantic with Columbus when he discovered America. So, so you really need to see the Irish as as a global nation. Now many of these people are going under adverse circumstances. So when the Catholics migrate it's often as indentured servants or they're going as mercenaries or they're going um, as um, a lot of missionary activity uh, uh, as well. Um, so, so sometimes the circumstances under which people leave Ireland, it's not voluntary migration, although uh, In other instances, it is.
2: And also during this time, the population of Ireland doubled from roughly one million, which was the highest rate of population rise in Europe. Um, so, So you wrote, why was this?
3: Well, actually, it's because of a lot of internal migration. Something like 350,000 people migrate from England, Scotland, and Wales, uh, along uh, along along with the Netherlands and the Huguenots in France. They, they migrate into Ireland. So we see a booming uh, population, and we see the emergence of a very mongrel population. Something like 20, I think it's 27% of the population of Ireland in the early 18th century are the descendants of these immigrants. So you know again it's it's very much of a melting pot in this period as it is today i think today 20% of the population of ireland was not born in ireland you know um so so you need to you know the, there's great continuity over the centuries in in terms of both inward migration as well as extraordinary immigration out of ireland
2: i wanted to ask you whilst you were editing um your volume What was something that you came across that perhaps you didn't know or you think that our listeners who might not have a great understanding of Irish history will find particularly interesting or something that they don't expect about
3: Ireland? I think, obviously, I'm an expert in the 17th century. I learned so much uh, uh, about the history of Ireland. And I think what's so wonderful about these chapters, it's not just the political narrative that they are offering, but there's a whole section on society. Um, and um, there's wonderful essays about ordinary people. And, and you know, this is where um, Irish history, I think, has lagged behind, um, say, the history of a country like uh, England or, or Britain where the emphasis has been very much on social and cultural history. Ours has been on a political narrative. So I think in that respect there's an awful lot to learn about society but there's also a wonderful chapter on um, the environment um, and the environmental history of Ireland in the early modern period and I, I realise environmental history is sexy uh, in, in other areas but but that's new to Ireland and I found that chapter fascinating and how um, the two countries Contributors looked to traditional written evidence, things like the 1641 depositions or the Annals of the Four Masters, and they combined that then with scientific evidence, um, you know, historic volcanic activity and, you know, tree rings and and all of uh, this in a very innovative way. And I think the other thing that I find really refreshing about these chapters is the way the contributors have engaged with um, technology and used um, the fact that we now have a lot of material available in digital form and developed some very sophisticated tools to interrogate that data um, to uh, offer insights that were previously un. Uh, just unimaginable almost. Um, and we see that particularly in the chapter on Irish land holding, because Ireland um, obviously was England's first colony. So Ireland was very, very extensively mapped. And we've got an amazing character called Sir William Petty, who in the 1650s uh, maps uh, the entire country just using chains. But even so, he literally lays down chains to map the country. But his maps are remarkably accurate. And we have those alongside the equivalent of the books uh, the doomsday book for ireland so we call them the books of survey and distribution they they give us uh, information on who held land in ireland uh, in 1640 and again in 1670 so you know this very very detailed data that was previously, this is big data for the 17th century, it was very, very difficult to manipulate and use. But now that it's available in digital form, it's allowed us to really do some extraordinary detailed uh, uh, studies of, of landholding. And so all of this now is it has been captured uh, in these volumes. And, and to my mind, it's really bringing a, a tremendous originality, a vibrancy, a freshness to a story that um, we know the political narrative, but this is, just really adding to it hugely. I really like that
2: um, the volumes do have this social history because it's so true. People do, you think of the history of Ireland and you think of it in terms of, of politics and religion. Yeah, would you like to tell us perhaps a bit about some of the social history side of things? What was life for the ordinary person like in this time period, 1550
3: onwards? I suppose what I've been uh, struck by is how useful archaeological evidence is in helping us recapture the ordinary experiences, along with evidence like the 1641 depositions, which I mentioned earlier in the context of uh, uh, mass killing and ethnic cleansing. But what these depositions also provide is a very unique insight to ordinary life in Ireland, because they contain inventories of people's homes and of their barns and of their sheds and of their workshops. And so it allows us to reconstruct, if you want, daily life in Ireland. I'm extremely interested in about 500 widows, um, very, very ordinary women whose voices are otherwise lost from history. And just the extent to which these women Operated in colonial Ireland um, as members. Obviously, some of them uh, are extremely poor, um, uh, uh, who are virtually living on the poverty line, eking out an existence, often with dependent children. And then others who are working, uh, maybe um, with a, a father or a brother or a husband in some sort of trade. Uh, they're very involved in the rural economy. Uh, others are acting as money lenders. They've obviously accumulated little cash. And remember, this is an era where there are no banks. And so these uh, widows um, are operating in in, in local communities, uh, lending small amounts of money to their neighbours and their friends. uh, And they're doing so on the basis of trust. And that's you know, because there's no way of recovering the debts except through goodwill, um, because they're small debts, and that's why when the rebellion breaks out, it's so catastrophic for them, because then they've lost their money is lost, and it's not repaid. So, so you know, you get all of these wonderful, vivid insights into just, as I say, or, ordinary ordinary life. Um, And and this is where, again, these volumes help to recapture that. And what we hope is they'll actually encourage much, obviously, further research. No volumes can ever be comprehensive. But if they provide a platform for debate, discussion, further research, then we've achieved something.
2: I was going to just bring things back to talking about the collection of volumes in general. What I wanted to ask you was, Do you think that Irish history as a whole is um, poorly understood or even neglected in the wider world? I grew up in England. I was born in England. I didn't learn any Irish history at school, which seems crazy to me, (laughs) given how close it is. Do you think that more should be done outside of Ireland to educate people about Irish history, particularly in Britain?
3: Well, the answer is, of course, yes. (laughs) But but listen, I grew up in, in Belfast and I didn't study Irish history until I was 16. So, you know, here I am living on the island of Ireland, learning my history very, very late. So I think there is a major issue. And listen, if we don't know our history, we don't know where we've come from. We don't know who we are. So it's such an important part of our identity. Um, And remember, you've got more people of Irish heritage living in Great Britain uh, than you do living on the island of Ireland. So I think there is a tremendous interest in uh, Irishness and Irish history in Great Britain. So I think as we move into a post-Brexit era, it's more important now than ever to um, remember the shared history that we have. And, you know, it's not always been easy. So back in 2011, uh, Queen Elizabeth II visited Ireland and it was a very historic moment. And she spoke very passionately. It's the most political speech I've ever heard the Queen give in Dublin Castle um, about the past and how it's very important that we bow to the past without being bound by it. But the past obviously has shaped uh, 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 us who we are. And I think it's had a very important, the, the Anglo-Irish relationship is a very important one at, So many levels, especially because of these human connections. So, these volumes are being published at a very significant moment and a very sensitive moment in the history of these islands, not just because of Brexit, but because in Ireland itself, we're in the midst of what we call a decade of commemorations uh, that began um, in uh, 2012. Uh, Obviously, then we had 2014, 1914, the outbreak of the Great War. Uh, Then we had the uh, Irish Rebellion uh, or the what we call the Easter Rising of of 1916, we we commemorated that with great dignity. I think, as we did uh, the outbreak of of the Great War. But we're now moving into very, very sensitive commemorations. The 50th anniversary uh, of the outbreak of of the Troubles in Northern Ireland in 2019. And then we come uh, to 2020 with the 100th anniversary of the partition of the island of Ireland uh, and then the outbreak of civil war the following year. So, you know, this is a very, very, very sensitive and significant moment. And I think one thing the Brexit negotiations and the Brexit discussions brought home to me was how little, um, uh, certainly uh, some of the politicians in Westminster knew of Irish history and, and the past uh, or, or if they knew they just didn't seem to care about the sensitivities of it and and actually the Irish question uh, is something that is still dominating politics today. It doesn't go away, it just gets reformulated. So so I think an appreciation and understanding of uh, uh, Irish history and of Anglo-Irish relations is something that would be in all of our interests To and that goes on both sides if you know what I mean. I think it's very important that we in Ireland uh, really understand um uh, our history and our shared uh, relationships uh, uh, with uh, uh, Britain and Northern Ireland. So it's, it's very important. And now more than ever, Rachel. That brings me on to my final question
2: quite nicely, actually. I was going to ask you, do you think that there will be in, say, 20 years time, another volume of the Cambridge History of Ireland that might
3: include some of these contemporary issues? Well, all I can say is I hope so, um, because I feel that, you know, um, especially we're living in historic times and it's very important that these are captured and maybe it'll be a revised edition of these or it'll be a brand new multi-volume history of Ireland, because 20 years, given the pace at which things are moving, you know, things could have moved on very significantly, uh, not just in terms of Uh, contemporary uh, uh, events, but also in terms of how we interrogate the past. You know, technology is moving on uh, at a pace that um, allows us to do much more innovative and creative research, access to the archives, all of this. So I think there's, you know, what you have to see these Cambridge histories at is is this generation's take on the history of Ireland. That
1: was Professor Jane Olmeyer. The Cambridge History of Ireland is out now, published by Cambridge University Press. OK, so that's about all for today's episode, but we will be back on Thursday to discuss some of history's greatest engineers with Simon Winchester.
0: Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, which is full of history articles, quizzes, image galleries and more. Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast.